Good morning, everyone. I'm Mel. And I'm Pippa. We're the creators and editors of Earthrise, the podcast and platform that focuses on the connection between human rights and environmental issues. Just a quick message before we begin. The views and research presented on this podcast are either our own or referenced on our website, www.earthrights.co.uk. We generally always record a few weeks ahead of release, so some facts or situations may have changed during this time. Hi everyone, welcome to episode three of the Earthrights podcast, series two. Um, today we are talking to Katerina Lyashenko, who also goes by the name of Kate. Um, Kate is Ukrainian, but is currently studying sociology at University Institute of Lisbon, where she's on her Erasmus course, whereas usually she's studying, studying for her master's in, at the University of Bielefeld. Prior to that, Kate graduated with her Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from the Kiev Mahola Academy. But she also went on Erasmus to Prague, which is where we all met. So yeah, Mel and I met Kate while we were studying um, in Prague. So we, Kate and I both did classes in environmental sociology, um, where we worked on a group project presenting information on why a plant-based diet is best for the environment. Um, and Kate and I instantly became friends um, pretty much straight away and spent the rest of the Erasmus always doing fun stuff together and have since been lucky enough to travel together. Um, Mel and I went to visit Kate in Ukraine, in Kiev, um, and last February, um, Mel and I met up with Kate in Prague. Which was just before the lockdown, actually. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In this episode, we're going to be talking to Kate about Ukraine's coal crisis, um, which she really interestingly called the frozen conflict. Just to sort of set the scene a little bit about Ukraine's history. So following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, um, Ukraine became an independent state. And in 1994, President, President Leonid Kuchma was formally elected. Um, but his presidency was surrounded by numerous corruption scandals. And then in 2004, Kuchma announced that he would not be re-running for re-election. And two major candidates emerged. So that was Viktor Yanukovych, mm-hmm. um, who was supported by both Kuchma and by the Russian Federation, who, um, and so he wanted much closer t- ties with Russia. Um, but the main opposition candidate was Viktor Yushchenko, um, and he called for Ukraine to turn its attention westwards and obviously not towards Russia. And his aim was eventually to be joining the EU. Um, so in the runoff election, Yanukovych officially won by a very narrow margin, but Yushchenko and his supporters alleged that the vote was rigged. Um, and intimidation cost him a huge amount of votes, um, and especially in eastern Ukraine. Um, and I think this is going to be significant later, as we'll find yeah. out. Um, but after this, a political crisis erupted um, because the opposition started huge street protests in Kiev and other cities. And this was called or has since been called the Orange Revolution. And the Supreme Court of Ukraine ordered the election results to be um, to be void. And in the end, a second runoff of the election found that Viktor Yushchenko was the winner. And five days later, Yanukovych resigned from office and his cabinet was completely dismissed in January 2005. So, yeah, and then fast forward to November 2013 and President Yanukovych did not sign the Ukraine-European Union Association Agreement and instead pursued closer ties with Russia. Um, And this move sparked mass protests on the streets of Kiev um, and ultimately led to Ukrainian protesters to set up camps in Kiev's main square, the Maidan Nezaljelnosti. And in January 2014, protesters started taking over various government buildings, first in Kiev and later throughout Western Ukraine. Um, and battles between protesters and police both resulted in about 80 deaths in February 2014. 
Kate, all of the protests and stuff, they culminate, it's now seen as the Ukrainian revolution 2014, right? There hasn't it's, been one since then. Yeah, it's called like uh, Ukrainian revolution of dignity. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very important thing now for like, I think nation building, uh, you know, and like symbolism about like the modern Ukrainian history and history of independence. Um, but of course now it's all in the past and of course uh, there is nothing on independence square anymore but it has been long months um, important months mm. i have to say so yeah kate and at the time of these 2014 protests which is now as you say the like coined as being a revolution um you were living in kiev um at the time so can you just kind of tell us a bit about this like what was that like uh, yeah, I mean, actually at that time I was still living in my hometown. I moved uh, one year uh, later uh, because I had to finish my uh, high school, but uh, still I visited Kiev uh, twice during this period of time. First time it was in, uh, I guess, December, so it was still on this um, uh, time when it was still like a very peaceful protest and it was more like pro-European integration protest. Whereas later, I think it was like more like in January when it turned into like more violent and rather anti, um, anti-presidential, uh, protest. Yeah. So against Yanukovych and his, um, um, and elites, generally oligarchs, uh, that were in power at that time. Uh, and that time, of course, first time it was, uh, one experience and later it was completely different experience because I was there like in February, right after 80 people were shot on the streets just like in two days. And uh, of course there are still, um, some, some issues, uh, regarding, uh, these several days if in February because, um, so basically, it was not the police that shooting people. It was some like people in black that nobody knows where they are coming from, and like obviously they were supported by the power of the time, but and there were not really investigations like finished about who was standing behind it, like the names of these people, and um, a lot of. Um, uh, like Yanukovych, uh, partners, they escaped to Russia as well as, uh, Yanukovych. So, uh, actually justice has not still be, there is no justice at the end. Um, but yeah, I mean, of course, this was uh, an important time and like the people that died, uh, they are heroes of the modern Ukraine and, uh, yeah, the the protest was really important, I think, in transition of Ukraine to independence and pro-Western uh, route of development. Yeah, and so following on from this violence and this revolution, the Ukrainian parliament in February voted to remove Yakonovich from power. Um, but following this, in March 2014, is when the annexation of Crimea occurred by the Russian Federation. Um, and though official results of a referendum um, on the reunification with Russia were reported as showing a large majority in favour of this annexation, the vote was organised under Russian military occupation and was denounced by the European Union and the United States as being illegal. And to this day, there's ongoing conflict um, in this Donbass region of Crimea, with Kiev understandably focusing on trying to end that fighting, which claims lives of soldiers um, on yeah, weekly, if not daily basis. And according to official reports, the conflict has led to the death of over 14,000 people. Um, and this annexation of Crimea is seen as one of the biggest land grabs that's occurred in Europe since World War Two. And Crimea has, because of this, undergone significant changes over the past six years. Um, a large number of ethnic Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars um, are like the, many of the people that have died. And have since left the area um, like out of intimidation and oppression um, as the, being the main reasons for moving. Um, and during the same period, an estimated 250,000 people have moved from Russia to Crimea. 
Um, so yeah, as, as you can imagine, it's very kind of conflicting what's going on. Um, and the economic picture of this is is mixed. Like like Moscow has poured a lot of money into funding construction in the region, kind of to paint a picture of success. But on the other hand, small businesses have suffered, particularly with the de the decline in tourism, which previously accounted for about one quarter of Crimea's economy. Um, and Crimea also remains subject to a variety of Western economics and and other sanctions. Um, so it's probably fair to say that the reality of the economic situation falls short of what many people expected or what. Hey, I was just going to ask you, um, I remember you saying about your, didn't your uncle have a hotel mm -hmm. in Crimea? Um, mm -hmm. And and obviously since the annexation of Crimea, he's did he lose it? Like what happened? Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. So... Like the main prosecutor, at some point they just came there and they were like, yeah, you have to either change your passport into Russian. So basically take a Russian, um, what was this called? Citizenship. And he would have to give up, uh, give up Ukrainian ones. So only then they would allow him to, uh, have some part of his business, but also they wanted to, to kind of capture uh, I don't know, 50, 60% of it. And at the end, I, I don't really know the details, but at the end he had to give, uh, give up his business. Um, almost like 90% were gone. And like now he has some part of, uh, of business, you know, like in percentage, uh, of, uh, st like, I don't know, stocks, I guess. I don't know how yeah. exactly it works. But yeah, unfortunately, they are not profiting from that anymore, and especially because like at the end, there are not so many tourists anymore. So yeah, is there a general feeling in from a Ukrainian's point of view then that the annexation was completely immoral, and is there a general sentiment that it wasn't what Ukraine wanted, or are there still mixed opinions um, from the point of view of like crime? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there, there were more mixed opinions before because like some people would say, yeah, you know, like they wanted that, uh, they, there was a referendum, but I think uh, people are gonna talk about it a little bit later about the referendum, but like generally, um, now the picture is that like people really miss that part of Ukraine because that's where they used to go for vacation and like, a lot of young people grew up there because of this, you know, like student camps and like school, school trips. So yeah, like definitely it's a huge loss for everybody individually and collectively. And, um, like a lot of people just don't want to go there, even though like it's still kind of possible, you know, like it's kind of complicated, but it's possible to go there if you really want on your vacation. But I know that a lot of people, at least in my environment, they would never do this until it becomes Ukrainian again, mm -hmm. just because it's, yeah, it's disgusting. It mm -hmm. is disgusting. So obviously because of this, the Ukrainian government kind of maintains that they will get Crimea, Crimea back. But I think from a more global perspective, it's quite difficult to see how the, the country will kind of muster the power to achieve this. Um, but like uh, politicians and researchers have kind of said that perhaps one possibility would be if Ukraine was to achieve dramatic economic success, um, both in absolute terms, but also in relation to the Russian economy, to the point where Crimeans calculated that their living standards would be better off as being part of Ukraine. Um, and even though Moscow would likely and Russia would likely resist that, um, it's kind of one possibility, like one possibility. But even if Crimea's return appears implausible in the near term, the US and Europe um, should definitely continue to support Kiev's position. Um, and it's like really important that the EU and the US maintain sanctions on Russia. Simultaneously with uh, this occupation of Crimea, uh, another thing started to happen. So in the Donbas region, which is like towards the uh, east of Ukraine, really close to Russia, um, uh, some separatist groups started like growing and uh, capturing more power. And um, at some point, um, 
at some point the military uh, the military action started to happen there and yeah because like most of the attention was at the Crimea at the time because like what was like the first thing that was happening uh Donbass didn't get enough attention at some point and like that's why we are going to talk about Donbass today because like actually it's even bigger problem for Ukraine than uh, Crimea is I mean of course Crimea is not less important I don't want to uh, to to make this picture but um the things are different and uh, I think that at now like uh, Donbass question is a little bit more acute uh, so that's why I would prefer to talk about it, especially in relation to like environmental topics of uh, uh, your uh, series of podcasts. So um, yeah, I should just briefly explain where is Donbass and what is this region and why we are talking about it. So um, the uh, Donetsk uh, coal basin, so it's like a coal area, is one of the largest in the world. And it's located um, within Dnipropetrovsk, Donetsk, Lugansk uh, regions uh, of Ukraine, as well as uh, Rostov region in Russian Federation. So it's quite a big area. Uh, it uh, is about 50,000 square meters. I just checked that it's like around 30 Londons. So it's quite a, a big um, territory. Uh, yeah it's like a comparison like that yeah, yeah because it's really hard to imagine ukraine is a really big country not many people like can imagine and yeah there are coal deposits and uh or deposits deposits, deposits. Uh, and uh they are characterized by uh, a great depth occurrence which is around 500 1000 meters uh, below the ground and uh the um, the interesting fact there is this is really like in-depth mining so it's accompanied by uh high coal costs as well as increased risk to the lives of the miners and uh in more than one third of all uh cases yeah of uh, coal mining uh, there there is a danger of sudden rock and uh, gas emissions uh, and uh, such deposits also have high methane content, so uh, there can be happening like fire hazards and underground explosions. So in that region, coal mining is like highly, highly dangerous, mostly like one of the most dangerous areas in the world, actually. And from an environmental perspective, like methane is one of the most potent greenhouse gases, like more potent than carbon dioxide. So, and I know that a lot of the methane emissions like occur in Russia and Ukraine, um, global methane emissions. So that's obviously a big problem as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all connected. It's all connected. I mean, it's not only mines, definitely, but like mm. as well, mines uh, contribute to this problem. Yeah. But nevertheless, even though it's like really dangerous, even though it's like really costly, uh, the first mines were opened in Donbass in like 18th century, it was during the uh, Catherine the second time. Uh, yeah, and it was happening because, of course, like people needed a lot of uh, coal at the time and like they would put all their possibility to, to get as much as possible for Russian state of that time, which was Ukraine also. So from the late 1940s uh, until the, the middle of 1970s, Actually, coal mining took, that took place in Ukraine uh, was one of the largest in the world. Uh, and uh, the peak of the coal production was uh, in 1976. And later on, it started um, decreasing uh, because, uh, of course, um, in, in 80s already, Soviet Union had uh, some crisis um, effects and like uh, there was uh, reduction in investment uh, as well as uh, the, the 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 mines they needed a restructure a restructuring because of course since many years uh, they were not changed or reconstructed at all uh, so the um, the industry started entering uh, this systematic crisis and that was actually one of the manifestations uh, of uh, large large scale corruption in coal mining uh, companies in soviet times because 
like in, it was in eighties when it became clear that Soviet system didn't work well and um, more and more corruption started to occur. Um, so you were mentioning as well that the um, the corruption was kind of manifesting a lot during the 80s as the cracks in the Soviet Union system were um, showing up a lot more. Um, but what are, what happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union with this area? Mm -hmm. So the things actually got way worse because, um, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, a lot of established economic ties uh, also break down, broke down. And, um, of course it, uh, impacted the decline in production. Uh, so in six years, uh, from 1990 to 1996, uh, it decreased more than twice. So production was like falling really, really fast. And, um, for example, in countries such as, uh, England and Germany, during that time, uh, starting in eighties, finishing like in, yeah, nineties, there were like, uh, coal industry, uh, coal industry has been restructured and, uh, economies uh, continued to grow due to increased energy efficiency and transitions to, um, uh, some, other sources of energy so like better cleaner technologies as well as also to oil uh, and yeah gas as well so, yes so like actually um today all industrialized european countries uh restructured their economies to post-industrial and uh, in the uk uh for example um in 2015 it was the last uh, mine that got closed uh, and in Germany, it's similar. Uh, and like, even though like there were like severe problems in, uh, social sector of the economy, right? Because like so many people lost their jobs, but still, still they could like find another jobs. And, um, uh, of course, uh, at, at the end, it brought a, a lot of like, um, opportunities for people because otherwise still these mines would be unprofitable and the situation would be worsening. Whereas in Ukraine, due to many reasons, uh, that was not happening. Um, I'm just going to add that it's interesting you say about mm. the fact that the um, last mine in England was closed in 2015 because actually at the moment there's been plan, um, very controversial plans for to erect a new coal mine um, and Boris is under a lot of fire to obviously not open mm. a oh, really? coal mine um, because it would be completely outrageous to do so in face of the climate crisis and even his dad was opposing it <laughs> publicly which was was a good sign of democracy to be fair. Yeah that's interesting I didn't know about this uh, I hope it's not gonna happen. <laughs> But yeah, Ukraine was less lucky uh, to have uh, a list of other problems, political problems, instability in all the possible ways you can imagine uh, instability in the state. So it was not happening, like reconstruction was not happening. And at the same time, the negative environmental consequences of coal mining have accumulated as well. So waste accumulation, air and soil pollution increased and um, depletion and poisoning of water resources have turned Donbass into a region of environmental crisis as well as economic crisis. And currently there are 127 coal mines in Donetsk and Lugansk regions, and uh, two-thirds of them are state-owned. Uh, and with the beginning of the war, 97 mines uh, of different forms of uh, ownership appeared to be controlled by illegal armed groups. Uh, so here also important to add that majority of state-owned uh, enterprises of the coal industry are unprofitable. And uh, the work of these enterprises is supported only by the state subsidy. Uh, and um, it is a source of various uh, corruption schemes. One, one thing I just want to ask, when you say with the beginning of the war, do you mean between Russia and Ukraine or? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. Just yeah, 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 yeah. 
it's interesting that you talk about the impact that corruption has had on like encouraging that these coal mines like continue to exist. So can you just explain a bit more like for people that might not know a bit of background to the corruption issues in Ukraine generally and like why this like has impacted this industry? Mm-hmm. So I think the problem with corruption is that is that like in Soviet Union um people really had like deficit of everything you know like they kind of needed to establish these informal connections where they would like manage to to get like different goods which were not like that they couldn't buy in the supermarket in the shop or yeah there were no supermarkets obviously so like it has like really like structural level like it's it's not only like uh you know this uh corruption in the top of the governance it's also like everyday corruption that is still there it's still present because like it's really in the mindset of the people but like when we are talking about corruption with this like enterprises of course is um is a like a really huge problem because uh just imagine that like there are two third like there are like hundred or over 100 mines that are under subsidies of the state so these are like billions of dollars this is like really a lot and um uh, of course for the people that like are owning them or managing them or just like being uh, like in this kind of business for them uh, is really important that this money from the state uh are increasing and that the state still pays them this money because like they are getting some part of this for example they don't uh, pay um, enough money to miners or they don't put money that they said they will put in in uh, repair uh, in reconstruction yeah right so they like they take i don't know 100,000 uh, euros and they just use like half of this saying that they used all of it so um that's that's how it like in simply how it works but of course there are like so many more more complicated schemes for example like there is laundering through state-owned enterprises of illegally mined coal uh, coal right because they're like mines that are illegal that they kind of like don't exist on the paper but they exist in re- reality so they launder it through state-owned enterprises also, there is a manipulation of coal pricing formulas. Uh, so as a result, uh, selling it uh, to state um, is very expensive. Sometimes it's even cheaper to buy uh, coal from other country than to buy it from Ukrainian mines. Uh, and uh, of course, there is also various machination with household coal, uh, which... Um, is like allocated to socially vulnerable categories of the population, but they like some, some people also like sell it and profit out of this. So like there is a huge, huge, I don't know, number of different stuff that they're doing there legally, illegally. Like it's all gray zone. It kind of reminds me of, um, I wrote a blog post about this a few weeks ago. Um, but it reminds me generally of, um, the situation in Cuba, obviously a post-Soviet state too, but just very much like the existence of a black market producing false statistics so that you can get hold of materials and then sell them on the black market. But like the, in a sense, there's a need to do that, like you say, because otherwise it's really inflated prices of coal and people can't get energy to their houses or whatever. So it's kind of like a, uh, catch 22 or a bit of a loose situation um, for the population. Yeah, exactly. You kind of mentioned before about the human cost of these mines, like how they're extremely dangerous um, with explosions and yeah, like the risk to life. I guess I like, obviously with the podcast being about human rights and the environment, can you just expand on the human rights impact of this industry. Okay, so uh, here I should probably tell a little bit about like general how depressed this region is. So actually uh, another effect that was happening due to Soviet uh, Union breakup was that um, there were like criminal wars in Donbas uh, which took uh, took place between uh, 1992 and early 
2000s, so like until really recent, uh, that there were like number of criminal groups that tried to like capture, right, all these like different businesses that became finally available for the uh, population to turn into private business, right? Uh, so, but they were like, they were really like criminals. So like actually there were even like uh, this news about, you know, like people shooting in the streets and like, all this like ki killing of content pen, con like concurrences. And, uh, that was a really, really strange time, uh, I would say. Uh, and, um, of course, uh, not all the mines got uh, privatized and, uh, some really, really, um, unprofitable enterprises uh, got shut down. So around, uh, hundreds, I don't know, several hundreds of thousands of people lost their jobs because as I said, like 83 mines were closed just in six years. So imagine how many people, how, how many people didn't get like enough money to sustain themselves. It's comparable to the sort of lost generation from Thatcher's time when she started closing the coal mines. And, um, obviously there was a big backlash and loss of, loss of jobs and general, um, resentment towards the government. Um, in closing down mines very quickly in the long term as you were mentioning earlier structurally and post-industrially it was uh, maybe a an important move for Thatcher to have made but generally uh, there are a lot of people and whole a whole generation of people that lost the ability to work and provide for their families which is what you're saying occurred here as well yeah yeah exactly like it's um it's very like similar situation, I guess, in other countries as well, where they needed to make this transition. But I, I think in Ukraine, it also like was worse just because like generally the whole country was struggling of crisis. So like there was no way to do like they couldn't find another jobs, even if they would know how to do something else, they wouldn't be really able to do it. So. That was the first thing, right? Like job loss without like social protection because mm -hmm. also like social security degraded a lot, right? In nineties because of uh, the, the breakdown. And, um, here I have to add that, uh, yeah, about like environment uh, aspect is that, uh, this, uh, long term, uh, coal production, uh, affected a lot, uh, the, the formation of mountains, uh, you know, and subs, uh, subsidence of the Earth's surface. Uh, so it also caused like flooding of several different territories where people actually lived, uh, and damage to buildings, utilities, and, uh, of course, uh, also air pollution, um, started to, yeah, affect uh, health, uh, of, uh, population. Um, and as for now, like these military actions that are happening, they exaggerate, uh, this situation even more because, uh, combat, combatants from both actually sides, from separatist side and from Ukrainian side, uh, they use these coal heaps, uh, as, uh, tactical heights, uh, and they shoot from them and also they shoot in them. So all these ke uh, chemicals, they, uh, scatter into the air. That's crazy. Wait, so they use them as kind of um, strategic positions, positioning mounds or whatever. And it's like, is it a byproduct from the the coal power stations or? Exactly, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So as I said, like in Donbass, we have like a very, very uh, deep mines. So actually like these uh, hills are around several hundred meters. So um, wow. I can imagine it, but I feel like it's a quite a sort of post-apocalyptic vision of fighting, like amongst coal, coal mine um, byproducts. Yeah. It's kind of crazy to yeah. think about. Yeah, so that's that's one problem, and also there is uh, another, like coming back to human rights issues, is that uh, because now there is no adequate control uh, over, of the state over the occupational safety, 
uh, in both like uh, minds that are occupied or not occupied like generally it's really hard right to control what is like happening there um, uh, people work in very bad conditions right so all this you know uh, kind of um, standards right standards of how the, the work has to be done like nobody can control them and nobody can say how bad the situation is generally uh, and uh, due to uh, sufficient restriction of freedom of speech that is happening there right because this like armed uh, groups are like really controlling uh, the population um, people don't have uh, opportunity uh, for peaceful assembly uh, yeah peaceful protest uh, and uh, as well there is no like there is a destruction of the trade union movement right of the miners so basically uh, miners uh, are deprived uh, of the opportunity to assert their rights and influence social process so it's not just that rights are taken from them they can't even like do anything with that so that's where it's really dramatical like situation i think yeah it's really bad yeah, and also there is uh, another thing that I I briefly mentioned that there is like illegal uh, mine uh, mining, and in that illegal mining there there is some information that even like the child labor is involved, and uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, there are there are various problems. Do um international or national campaign groups uh, lobby the government, or is it uh, are they are these widely known human rights abuses that are um, that people are trying to expose and do something about, or is it another part of the deeply rooted corruption that is just kind of silenced as a problem in general? No, it's not silenced at all, but. Uh... As I said, like these territories are occupied by the separatist and like Russian supported groups. Mm. So uh, like it's really hard to, to do anything with that because like if some like international, uh, organizations such as, uh, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe would like come to, to do their something to help to improve the, the situation with human rights, um, that's really dangerous. I mean, there is still like some explosion in happening. There are still like some tourist, touristic uh, acts happening. People there are having like weapons every day, like just having, having it with them. So like there is curfew in the evening. Like it's, uh, the, the, the minor, the problem of minors is one side of it. And definitely it's really like bad, but like there are so many other problems there their rights of women are humiliated their rights of children with covid situation it's even worse and it's really hard to get to these areas uh, and really hard to record something because of freedom freedom of speech deprivation so unfortunately unfortunately it's really hard to do something about it at this point So you're talking about a more general overall difficult situation in terms mm -hmm. of human rights. And would you say a lot of these problems have remained unresolved since the collapse of the Soviet Union? And I mean, is would you say that this, this collapse has led to this crisis amongst all of the others? Um, yeah, I think we started talking about this, but like now we can focus on why actually the armed conflict happened and how it is connected to... Uh, this corruption schemes in uh, in Donbas. So yeah, as I said, there were like a lot of like organized crime in that region during 90s uh, until almost like beginning of 2000s. Uh, and um, of course, the people that uh, captured uh, power over the mines, they were also like richest people there. And of course, they also managed to get a lot of political power so there were let's say political elites that are really connected to these schemes uh, in uh, coal production and um, their main idea is of course to capture power in all the country and put a pressure on kiev 
And because, you know, in 90s, the, still the democracy is so unstable. Uh, of course, the government is uh, literally afraid uh, of consequences of closing and restructuring the mines. So they're just not doing it. And they're giving more and more subsidies to the region so that like people are still having decent salaries, right? Um, and at the same time, these local elites are getting more and more power, right? Because like every, every year they demand more and more subsidies. And, um, yeah, at, at some point in 2004, uh, it became clear that, uh, these oligarchs, um, and especially Renata Kmetov that, uh, had like captured most of, uh, these enterprises, uh, they become really, really important in the political scene. Uh, so, uh, the elected president Yanukovych, um, uh, he, uh, so there was this, this situation with Orange Revolution, right? When, uh, he actually lost, uh, the election. But then in 2008, he, um, uh, he managed to get the presidency. Uh, and, um, one of the reasons why he didn't sign the, um, the European, the association with the European Union, this document, uh, was, uh, because he was like, I guess, really having a lot of pressure from, uh, from that region. And I mean, he was from that region. He had an interest. Definitely. He was connected to all these corruption schemes. This is where he came from. Uh, so for him, it was like important to make things be as they are, because of course, for European Union, it will be really important to eliminate uh, the corruption in Ukraine in order to yeah, perceive it as a European Union country. Uh, so uh, his uh, his decision was really uh, economically motivated, but economically motivated for him, not for the state. Uh, and uh, why the separatist movement started uh, like exaggerating uh, during his presidency? Because the groups, uh, these elites, these political economic elites of Donbass, uh, they were uh, pushing forward the idea uh, that only local uh, politicians can really understand the problem of the region and that all the like um, politicians from Kiev they don't know how is it to be a miner. They don't know how is it to lose their job. So they were basically portraying everybody who would want to reconstruct and change, uh, you know, like uh, transition the um, industry, coal industry. They were portraying them as uh, enemies, right? And that was happening since quite a long time, actually. It was not happening in 2014. It was happening, like, all these years. Uh, so there was a really, like, collision between, right, like, centralized government and local government there. Here it's also important to add that uh, the um, population of that region was uh, very mixed. Because, you know, people from all over the Soviet Union were coming to work in these mines. Because at that time, it was this money. It was a good job to have. And, uh, of course, many of them really didn't feel themselves as Ukrainian. Uh, yeah, and so there was, like, this problem of self-identification mixed together uh, with, yeah, this uh, constant feeling of being, like, precarity, right, that they will lose their jobs because the the mines will get closed. Um, so, yeah, then, like, separatist movement was very strong there. And, of course, when Russia started supporting separatists, it, it got just worse and worse and worse. And at some point, uh, it is what it is. We have an armed conflict uh, since many years and... Um, we can call it a war because, uh, actually, I, I think 14,000 people died in this conflict. I, I'm not sure how precise this number is. I, I suppose it is like actually more. And we don't know how many people just had like injuries of different, uh, margin, uh, yeah, like physical or mental. Let's, let's say that like one mistake that Soviet Union did in 80s of not restructuring the whole system of coal production 
of not trying to eliminate the corruption schemes around uh, the coal industry. It led to deaths of um, thousands of people and that's that's how dangerous right coal production is <laughs> yeah. and, and it therefore led to this frozen the, conflict yeah that it that it's not resolvable at the moment because there's no there's no political will to restructure the system still and if um russia is constantly supporting the separatist movement What's the situation like today? Mm-hmm. I guess obviously with the pandemic and everything, but yeah, what's kind of going on at the moment? Uh, yeah, here I should say about like an interesting fact, uh, because Mel asked me how to manage to uh, solve this frozen conflict situation. So actually at the moment, um, in Ukraine, there are like uh, 14 like power plants and seven of them, so half of them, uh, are technologically designed to burn anthracite uh, coal. Uh, and um, the only place uh, where are these anthracite coal mines are these occupied territories. So Ukraine as a state still has to purchase this coal from terrorists. So basically supporting uh, their existence. As well as, uh, as Russia, right? As well as what Russia is doing. Uh, but they just give them their money out and Ukraine is like trading with them still. Yeah. So actually dependence on the supply, uh, on the supply of this anthracite coal poses a threat to the energy security uh, of the state. And, uh, yeah, basically it financially supports the existence of this, uh, republics. Yeah. Of the separatist republics. Uh, and, um, uh, we can, we can say that for like really a long time, uh, the mining movements were a great, uh, illustration of, uh, social pro, like participation of, uh, different uh, parts of population and political processes of the state. Uh, and, um, the economic processes that took place within the coal industry have traditionally had a significant impact on political uh, processes in the country. Uh, but uh, now, of course, um, basically mines are left, miners are left alone uh, and they're not really supported by uh, Ukrainian government, but they're also not supported by, by Russia. So like so many people just had to, had to move uh, and, um, I guess like there are no like concrete number, but uh, I heard something like around two to two and a half million people moved from Donbas area within the Ukrainian borders and uh, around 800,000 moved to Russia uh, because of job loss. And I don't know how many of them were minors, but I suppose quite a lot. but of course not everybody uh, is able to to leave due to different reasons yes somebody has like health problems somebody has to take care of their older or younger relatives and uh they just um yeah and of course for moving you need money like um you need to find a place where to live you need uh some months to find a job so not everybody is able to do it. So they just keep working in these mines, earning like five euros a day for eight hours of really dangerous and very harmful for their own health job, as well as for environment, of course. Uh, and uh, I, I, I watched some interviews from there quite recently. And like what people that still live now there think is that like they just are waiting for to be accepted by Russia and to get Russian passports mm. because it's really it's really hard um, for them now uh, with all the restrictions especially with covid to travel to you know like mainland so for now like there really a lot has to be done um, yeah to to help the people that live there and also 
I mean, the only basically way how you can change the situation there is the withdrawal of the region from depression, which is uh, a key to peace establishment. It needs a systematic approach to the coal industry, uh, so restructuring of coal mining companies, uh, and uh, it will help to maybe creation of new jobs and economic opportunities uh, will be basically a precondition for transition to renewable energy sources as well as for people that work there, like just on their individual level, yeah, that will really make their lives better. Is there anything that you would suggest to listeners um, or um, organizations that people could support to help the situation in Ukraine, um, in particular in the Donbass region? Um, I think I can I can maybe send some links to some like organizations that are still like doing their something uh, for just ordinary people uh, like for instance just like giving out like clothes and uh, I don't know this kind of things but I would also just recommend uh, to yeah to to read news about uh, Ukraine and uh, to critically think about like what is happening now in Russia like what is happening with Navalny it all is getting like even more dangerous mm-hmm. so yeah I, I think it's it's really important to understand the role of Russia in this uh, whole situation also I I think that after Corona situation get better gets better I I really invite everybody to to come to Ukraine because of course we have our problems but it's still a marvelous country with nice people and I think that it's important that people just like know more about Ukraine so that they accept uh, yeah this country as a part of like Europe as a part of progressive uh, states yeah I'd like that people would just read more and educate themselves about uh, Eastern Europe. Thank you so much Kate for coming on the podcast it's been fascinating. Thank you so much. If you are interested or concerned by any of the issues raised during this podcast, then please get in touch at contact at earthrights.co.uk or visit our website www.earthrights.co.uk. You can find full recordings of all of the episodes on most podcast platforms or on the Earthrights website, referenced in the show notes. We host a blog on there too, as well as recommendations and other information. Please also join in on the journey by following our Twitter and Instagram accounts at earthrights underscore. If you would like to be involved in an episode of the Earthrights podcast, then please also get in touch. This Earthrights podcast was hosted, produced and edited by us. Music and sounds were specially made for Earthrights by the Mowgli Wild Boys, who are currently recording a new LP at Circuit Studios in Nottingham. Please follow their Instagram and Facebook at Mowgli Wild Boys.